right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we're taking a look at The Kill Room, a action thriller comedy starring Uma Thurman and Samuel L. Jackson. And uh, it was a fun one to get into. We don't get many movies like this nowadays, and so we get into some good puzzle pieces. Joining me to talk about it is filmmaker Jonathan Salemi. We're also going to talk about his new film, The Last Deal, which is out now on VOD and on Stars, and also a very solid thriller that you should go check out. Uh, two new movies to talk about, so we got a fun conversation coming up here in a second. Before we get into it, I do want to remind you, as always, to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on social media at PiecingPod, and don't forget to join our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about here on the show. Uh, also, you know, we do have a Patreon, the Produced by David Rosen Patreon, where I post bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, from Awesome Movie Year, and from my music career. I recently released an exclusive soundtrack album from a horror film that I scored called Jacqueline. It's only on the Patreon. Uh, and also, by the way, today, the day that this episode goes up, I have another horror soundtrack album that actually is coming out as a full release. It's on all the streaming services. You can buy it on Bandcamp. It's called Blind Malice. Uh, both of those films by the same director, by the way, Chris Johnson. So shout out to Chris. Uh, you could check out a bunch of his films on Tubi right now, including Jacqueline. But uh, lots of great stuff over on the Patreon. Produced by David Rosen. It's patreon.com slash Rosen. Check it out if you want to support the show that way. But otherwise, we're happy to just have you out there listening. So uh, with all that said, let's get into the kill room. All right, we're going to talk about the kill room. And joining me today, we've got filmmaker Jonathan Salemi. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to talking about this movie and then also getting into your new movie, The Last Deal. Uh, but you are a filmmaker. So why don't you tell my audience a little bit about you before we start getting into The Kill Room? Yeah, so uh, I'm from Boston, Mass. Moved out here after I graduated from college, here being Los Angeles. Um, mm -hmm. Started an internship at Sony Pictures uh, for Doug Wick. He was a, or is a producer. He did Gladiator. It's currently doing Gladiator 2 right now. Um, mm. And then I, I directed my first feature at that time um, that played in one theater here in Los Angeles and uh, then made a few shorts and then found myself in a place where I wasn't getting a lot of opportunities to direct another feature. And I, mm. I took a big chance on myself and better myself, so to speak, and made the, the last deal. And that came out yep. in February nationwide in 22 screens and then... Um, we came out on Stars and Encore uh, in June, and been very fortunate. It's been it's been playing heavily on Stars and Encore every week, so yeah. it's uh, it's been quite surreal. Like sitting on the couch and watching TV at night, and you're flicking through and you see your your movie there. So sure. I'm incredibly grateful, and yeah, and it's on Amazon, and it's been doing really well. So I've been very humbled at the reception that it's been getting. Oh so, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. When we first uh, like got in touch and we were talking about covering a movie, uh, I know it was like out on like VOD, and you know I don't know how big of a reach it had, but I've noticed that it's like all over Stars now, and uh, I have a feeling it's going to you know it's a slow rollout, but I have a feeling as people continue watching it, they're going to really dig it because uh, I definitely liked it a lot, and we'll talk about it a lot more later for sure. But, you know, with that said, going into The Kill Room, th this is an interesting movie because, I mean, first of all, I feel like the main story with this film is the cast because, I mean, we've got Uma Thurman, who we haven't seen that much lately, and we have Samuel L. Jackson just kind of cutting loose and having a fun time, which he's been in Marvel mode for a lot of the last few years. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, se it seems like that's like a lot of fun. And then, of course, Maya Hawke being in there with uh, Uma Thurman, that's also, I think, part of the story here. But was this a movie on your radar at all, or did you just see like uh interesting little thriller that also happens to be a comedy let's do this one yeah no i i didn't uh know too much about it i'm glad i got a chance to watch it and and yeah you you're, you're right like it seemed like because samuel jackson's in a lot of movies and it seemed like he like generally had a lot of fun on on this one you could definitely yeah. tell um yeah and i'm sure he appreciated his nickname in it and then <laughs> There's probably like a level of comfort because I did a little re research on the film after I watched it. And there was definitely a level of comfort probably with Uma Thurman on there. And they both worked with Tarantino. Sure. Um, and I guess originally, I, I don't know, you, you probably know about this, but or originally they were casting for someone in their late 70s to play that role. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. I mean, especially with all the Yiddish baked in there, like I have yeah. to assume that was there originally, and then they were like, you know what, screw it, let's keep it. But, uh, but yeah, I actually saw a little bit about that as well. Like that, uh, you know, as soon as Uma Thurman got cast, you know, they were like, you know, who who could we get for for this other role? And she was like, well, what about Samuel Jackson? And they were like, of course, Samuel Jackson. <laughs> like, let's do it. So yeah, it's yeah, nice no. that you have the budget that you can say, oh yeah, let's get Samuel Jackson. Like, <laughs> yeah, like oh, why yeah, not? We can just throw that million dollars down or five hundred thousand. <laughs> sure, absolutely. Well, uh, let's start getting into some puzzle pieces, and along the way, we'll talk about what we liked and didn't like about the movie. But uh, what do you have for your first puzzle piece for the Kill Room? Uh, I've got one um, that I haven't seen anyone else mention, but for me, it definitely felt like it. It felt like a modern day analyze that. Um, sure. Where you have that satire, the comedy, um, but with a little bit of darker implications. And it definitely felt like a page from that. Like that struck me off the bat. Yeah, no, absolutely. I was also thinking of like Sopranos to go along with that, but like, you know, tough guys that also have feelings. And, uh, you know, once this guy starts to like unlock with his artwork, you know, that he has more <laughs> to say, more to give the world other than just killing people. Um, you know, you certainly get a lot of that. And then of course, like this, this woman in this case, uh, who's just kind of mixed up in all of it and, uh, has no idea what's going on, but, uh, ends up, you know, being able to like hang with it all, uh, analyze that is absolutely, you know, that kind of a movie here. And I think, I think that, you know, this movie is one, like it is theatrical. It's out right now in theaters at the time we're, we're recording this. Um, but I don't know if people like know about it. Like it kind of feels like it's a little under the radar and I feel like it, it has that kind of appeal though. Like if like families and like, you know, older people who would be into movies like that would probably enjoy this. Absolutely. Um, I think it was distributed by Shout and then mm -hmm. Bonded probably um, was heavily involved in the financing part. So like, I'm not sure how much of marketing that they put behind it. 
Yeah. I'm not even sure how many screens it's playing on. I mean, it's got to be playing on maybe 100, 150. Yeah, sure. I don't know. That's kind of my, my guess. Unless it's just playing because it's playing around you um mm-hmm. in vegas and so. we we don't get anything here so <laughs> yeah like well my point being is like um a lot of times they just play on both the coasts, like new york sure. LA, chicago um yeah. not that chicago's on the coast but um <laughs> but yeah, yeah like it, it i attributed to like like they probably didn't have the huge marketing budget and and just trying to get the word of mouth and it's definitely like a fun little movie that i wouldn't have known about unless you told me right on right on yeah. Well, I'll go to a first piece for me, and that is going to be Marielle Heller's Can You Ever Forgive Me from 2018 uh, with Melissa McCarthy as this author whose career is kind of in the dumps, and she takes to forging famous deceased author's signatures, and immediately that takes off. She starts making money, her career is starting to come back, and, you know, of course, things get a little too hot. Um, But basically, we're kind of dealing with the same kind of thing of someone who's in the world of art. In this case, it's like art, art, like paintings, uh, and her career is just not quite working out. And so when this criminal uh you know opportunity pops up she ends up running with it even though at first she uh doesn't want to and of course it works all too well and uh (laughs) things go a little bit crazy for her but uh you know two different worlds of art mixing with uh going about it the wrong way kind of although it's kind of celebrated here in the kill room that's a good take yeah Yeah. and a great movie by the way I, i haven't seen that one yet Okay, it's really good, really worthwhile, and uh, Melissa McCarthy is awesome in it. She uh, she does a great job Usually in that movie. Is, yeah. yeah. What do you got for your next piece? Uh, up next is The Square. So I remember seeing that back when, I think it won in Cannes, I think. Um, yeah. Or Cannes, however you want to pronounce it. But, um, mm. but yeah, it struck me like that, like something a little obscure and making fun of themselves or of the, of, the, um, of the business field that they're dealing with. Um, so yeah, it struck me as that, like a mix of a little bit of that involved in there too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I could see that because, you know, as a takedown of the art world and just like kind of the pretentiousness of it all. And that dude, all his films are kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they're all very good too. Um, but yeah, the square, the square is awesome and a great one. I'm just going to like jump right on top of that because I think it yeah. deals right with the same kind of themes as what I was going to go with. Uh, and it's actually a documentary from 2007 called My Kid Could Paint That. Mm. Have you ever seen this documentary? No, but it's kind of self-explanatory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just dealing with the the level of, you know, is is there bullshit involved in this industry of, of painting? Like, do, do the people who are selling it at these insane costs and making this whole industry around it, do, do they even know whether or not the art is good, you know? And yeah, that movie is very funny, uh, especially as a documentary, it's very funny. And uh, the idea of manipulation behind any of it. And, you know, in here in the Kill Room, you know, plot-wise, like, we're, we're talking about this kind of meatheadish uh you know hitman guy who you know to 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 launder money ends up painting and right. they sell the paintings through this place and it's like are his pieces good like it doesn't matter because they're selling them so it kind of you know it it they're good just by the factor of them selling them so it, it leads into all that the manipulation of this whole market and uh it, it's a really fun documentary worth checking out and nice. yeah. I, I think deals with this really well Okay. Yeah. Check that out. Yeah. Yeah. To, to that point too, I was pleasantly, cause a lot of the, these types of films could like not 
invest in, in their prop department or put a lot of thought into what they're making. But I was actually yeah. pleasantly surprised when I watched it. I was like, the bags actually look like, okay, I could see that in a museum <laughs> somewhere. Like I could yeah. literally see that there's a museum here in LA called, called the Broad and I could see it in there. Um, and, and then the paintings themselves, I think they were all what oil paintings or I think or so. Like yeah. Um, yeah. They're actually like, they're like, okay. Like they actually, I think they actually, pro I would have, I'm curious, got a real artist to paint those and make the bags. Cause it wasn't just like a prop department uh, master, like just putting them together. So it actually, sure. like, I, I think that that was a nice detail in the film. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I liked about the movie too, like along those same lines is how, how much Uma Thurman is selling the mixed emotions of it all. Like, like she loves this world, but she also is just like, she's just, you know, at, at bottom, at the bottom basically. And just, you know, she has no other choice, but to love these pieces of art, right. <laughs> whether, whether they're good or not. And uh, I think she really sells that and has a lot of fun in the, in the role. So, Agreed. uh, what do you got for another piece? Uh, up next is Small Time Crooks. Uh, oh, yeah. Woody Allen, kind of the same, like, uh, like Uma Thurman, I think, plays mostly into that one, where, like, like you have these professionals that aren't really professionals, and they're bungling along the way um, mm -hmm. with comedy as well. So it, it, it did feel like a little bit of, like, a Woody Allen film in that yeah. regard. No, I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's such a fun one. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, criminals that are, like, bungling like that are always such a fun, like, foil yeah. for this kind of movie. It's, like, it's so good. Um, actually, I, I, you know what? Right along those lines, exactly. I'll go with another one, which is too new to be, like, a real inspiration here because it is from this year. Uh, but a movie that I feel like is, like, a perfect companion piece to The Kill Room is Mafia Mama. Have okay. you seen Mafia Mama? I haven't, but I, I saw the trailer and the posters. Yeah, um, it it got trashed critically. I mean, yeah. and it didn't it didn't do well either. But I loved it. I thought it was so much fun. And uh, Tony Collette, another beloved blonde actress, uh, you know, just cutting loose and doing this goofy comedy in which she's you know basically outsmarting mobsters, um, which is exactly <laughs> what happens here with Uma Thurman. Uh, you know, comedy. You know, that kind of high society, a lot of blood and violence that isn't exactly necessary for this kind of movie, but it's there and hey, it's appreciated, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, I think these two movies go hand in hand really well. And the I, I feel like we don't get enough comedies like this nowadays, just straight up comedies. No, no there's not a, like it seems like the world, at least in the last eight years or so, has become more cynical. So you're not getting um, the, the only lighthearted fear you're getting is comic book films and a lot of your comedies are falling flat so like yeah. why even try um right for, for some folks and especially studios so yeah yeah it does feel that way and uh you know thankfully for me personally i've been liking a lot of the comedies that have come out this year but they've also all failed miserably so it's like yeah. it, it, hard to say yeah like <laughs> ho hopefully we're taking a corner now where like we're gonna see a lot more fantasy and that sort i mean Mm -hmm. um, we'll find out, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what do you got next? Up next, only based on the two characters. So Samuel Jackson and Joe Mangiello. I think I'm pronouncing his name right. That sounds um, right. <laughs> uh, the professional is like an obvious choice where you have like, like your DNA IAO uh, being the head master of the whole thing. 
And then, sure. and then you have the professional who's very soft spoken, doesn't say much. And it felt like that dynamic a little bit um, in regards to that, except, except Samuel Jackson was much more funny and stuff like that. So sure. no other part of the film was very much like it, but just felt like that dynamic. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one in because, uh, yeah, that dynamic is something I was thinking about. I didn't really have a piece for it specifically, but definitely like the 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 calm-natured murderer uh, and the more yeah. like, you know, out there boss guy. So definitely that, that fits in really well for that. So I like that. It's a great one. I will go with uh, another pretty recent movie. I think it was 2021, I want to say, The Outfit with Mark Rylance. Uh, he, he plays a, uh, tailor shop owner and criminals basically force him to allow, in this case, uh, it's stashing dirty money at his tailor shop and stashing it in the, uh, the outfits that he's, that he's fixing up. Um, but you know, here, of course, we're talking about, uh, you know, it's paintings and that's the, the way that the dirty money is making its way through. Uh, but two different kinds of movies in which, uh, crime is happening in a small little shop and uh, the the person in charge is kind of against their will. Although, of course, Uma Thurman's character does like come around on it and starts like really like having fun with it, basically. But uh, at first against her will, uh, you know, allowing all this to happen and uh, allowing herself to get compromised, kind of. Uh, the Alpha is a really solid little thriller that um, also a little under the radar, but uh, yeah. it's a good one. Nice. Yeah, it's definitely a case of like, I mean, I'm sure it's out there, like life imitating art with your example there and then and then the kill room. Like, I never thought of like, hey, that's how art sells. Like, you can just ship a empty crate and then as long as you have an invoice, you can like spoiler alert, like like show like this thing was sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's a great way to yeah. like launder money. I, I was like when when I was watching, I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's a good way of laundering money. <laughs> it's funny you say that. I mean, we, we'll we'll talk about your movie some more uh, a little later. But the way that uh, you know, spoiler alert, the the truck ends up you know getting taken. That was like a you know a solid little clever you know twist kind of. And this also kind of like leans into criminal ideas that screenwriters get. I guess is yeah. what I'm saying here. Yeah, it, it, it's always nice when when a screenwriter or however it comes about, like when you have smart choices like that that are very original. You know, yeah, or, absolutely. Um, but yeah, right on, right on. So, do you have any other pieces for this one? Um, I will say, like, I mean, Samuel Jack Jackson, I liked a lot. It was like you could definitely tell he had a lot of fun, like I said. But the one part for me that I was pleasantly surprised about was Joe Mangiello. I thought did a really good, a really great job. Like, I felt like he was very engaging every time he was on screen. I was very engaged and curious and. And wanting to, to learn more. And I thought this was like a nice part for him to play. I think before this, he played a, um, he was in a, not a superhero film, but like an anti superhero film. Um, and then the Magic Mike series and stuff like that, where sure. he's kind of sort of playing like that, that beefcake, like knucklehead. But like in here, I, I felt he, he showed a lot more vulnerableness than I've seen from him in the past, even though didn't have a lot of dialogue. And I was pleasantly surprised in how engaging he, he was. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think he uh, he was great. And like his character kind of has the biggest arc of the film, like even though Uma Thurman's certainly the main character, like his character, like has you know a whole a whole story arc that uh, really gets explored. So uh, he does he does a lot with that, you know, that 
very kind of could have been like a background character uh, performance, but he really does it. So yeah, yeah absolutely. He's great. Um, I'll throw one more piece in here. It's another one that is, I think, you know, too new to truly be an inspiration. But then again, maybe it was because I think it was in the festival circuit last year. Uh, But it's a film from this year called Inside uh, Mm -hmm. with Willem Dafoe as a art thief who gets stuck in a a high rise apartment and has to figure out a way to get out. And, uh, you know, obviously very different plot wise. But as far as like the intersection between uh, art, crime, high society, the the whole bullshit nature of it all, of everything <laughs> that's kind of goes on in that world. Uh, Inside really w- was a pretty big takedown of all that stuff. And, you know, it, it did it in a quite metaphorical way, whereas this is more of like a on-the-nose, straight-up comedy kind of way. Uh, but both kind of dealing with the same thing. And, you know, it's like when you brought up The Square earlier, you know, it's certainly a... Uh, you know, a world that deserves some skewering, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it goes to show there's a lot of opportunity there and not a lot of films being made. So, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, I'll read down the list of puzzle pieces and then we will uh, get into some closing thoughts here for The Kill Room. We talked about Analyze That, Can You Ever Really Forgive Me, at The Square, My Kid Could Paint That, Small Time Crooks, Mafia Mama, The Professional, The Outfit, and Inside... Uh, yeah, you know, obviously a lot of, uh, intersection between crime and comedy. That's kind of the main thing here. It's, uh, it's a kind of movie that we don't see that often. And like we were talking about earlier, like it, it's great to see them trying to do something like this, whether, you know, it connects with an audience, we'll see. But, um, any other closing thoughts on this one before we, uh, wrap up the kill room? Um, I thought it was really like lighthearted and fun. Enjoyed it a lot. I also enjoyed like the director inserting current like modern day themes into it without being heavy handed, which is all, always nice that like like you're not being too heavy handed with with your own philosophies and stuff like that. But it's refreshing to hear characters keeping it modern. And yeah, I I, I thought it was just like a fun movie that you can go watch and, and not have to think too much and and you leave feeling good. Absolutely. Yeah. I, to that director, um, Nicole Payone, I, I believe she only has one other feature, Friendsgiving, um, which I haven't seen. But yeah, no, she she does a great job here. And um, th- there's plenty of, uh, you know, it could have been more on the nose and it thankfully isn't. It's like a little bit like more wacky and out there. And I definitely appreciate that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I like how Uma Thurman gets a little sloppier as it goes, which right. is like, I think part of the appeal of the movie and uh, definitely uh, a fun thing about it. So yeah, I think that does it for the kill room. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your new movie, the last deal, set it up for people who maybe haven't seen it. Yeah. So um, it's about a black market cannabis dealer who makes one last deal before he's about to get squeezed out of the business when marijuana turns legal in California. Um, it's a crime thriller came up with the idea in like October, 2019, like no pages written, no outline, just completely fresh, never had the idea before. And then Mm. we were on set 10 months after that shooting it. So it was a really like, uh, kismet way of, of, of making a film of everything just working out uh, along the way. I was very fortunate with all the pieces that lined up and, and how we made it. Um, 
and, and yeah, uh, I've been very uh, proud of and grateful of, of the reception it's been getting and, and people have liked it and, and see it for what it is, like a, a low budget film that was very aggressive in how it was made. Yeah, well, I mean, you say low budget, but I mean, it certainly looks like good it looks really good you know and i think uh, a lot of that goes a long way for making a movie like this stand out so you know my first question you, you were just kind of like talking about that right there that you hadn't come up with this idea until 2019 but w was there anything that was like that changed in in like the world that was kind of like making you think of it because obviously this all happened in 2016 when Proposition 64 passed and weed became legal. Um, was there any kind of like spark in 2019 that kind of uh, started this? Well, so I've been um, close friends of mine have been involved in the cannabis industry and still are. Mm -hmm. So you know, I remember like 10 years ago being in downtown LA in a warehouse just caked in those fluorescent lights with marijuana plants and thinking it's like the coolest thing that I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, and then a buddy of mine, he has his own CBD line. So, so I, I know a lot about the, the business in the field. And then my father and me were trading cannabis stock. So I know a lot about the business side too. Mm -hmm. um, and what I did was um, going back to something I said at the beginning of the show where I wasn't getting an opportunity to direct another feature I knew in April 2020, I was going to make a feature. I was like, hey, let me just write something um, that I'll make for $50,000 because I can, I can scrounge that up on my own. And yeah. I made a checklist of all the things I had around me, like marijuana fields, airplanes, tarmacs, uh, hmm. cool locations in Los Angeles, just everything that you see in the movie right now, I had a checklist of, but I didn't know what the movie was or what the idea was. And I knew it was going to be somewhere in the action crime hemisphere. And then in October 2019, I watched a Cassavetti's film from the 70s called The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. And, sure. and I just really enjoyed the way it was shot. And, um, and, then, and then the lead actor in that, being behind the eight ball and then doing a deal that goes bad. And then the gangsters are going to kill him no matter what, after he does what they want him to do, which is to kill this rival uh, mobster. And I was like, Hey, I think that's my idea is, yeah. is to take somebody that's involved in cannabis that ends up because I saw it with, with the main characters based on one of my best friends. And I saw his business go down once 2016 hit like he was doing mm -hmm. very well, had tons of cash on him all the time. Not a gangster at all, much like Vince, who's the character in this. Just a regular dude, um, right. never carries a gun or anything like that. But once cannabis became legal in California, his business started going down. And he started working in shady deals and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, that's the premise for this movie. Is someone who now has their back against the wall and needs to make one last deal. And it goes wrong. And, yeah. and you see that downfall and very simple story. I knew, I knew like it wasn't anything groundbreaking, but putting it in a world that we haven't seen before, I felt was what was going to set my movie apart from the other films coupled with, uh, with how I write the characters and just having them fall off a cliff every 10 minutes or so, like, <laughs> like Kasdan and Lucas did with Indiana Jones. And and, sure. and and so so that was the basic idea, and I wrote an outline, and I was off shooting—not off shooting, but I was off writing the film right away. And I had my first draft 
uh, within a month in January, and I gave it to a producer friend, um, Kyle Safarlio, and then he was like, I, I love it, and, and we were in pre, so. That's awesome, that's yeah. awesome. I, I think a big part of what makes the film work is your star, uh, Anthony Molinari. Uh, I think he's great as Vincent, and I believe I read uh, that he's one of the producers on the film too, is that right? That's right, yep. Yeah, that's correct. He's got a cool vibe like that reminds me like a little bit of like a cross between like a Dominic West or Gerard Butler type, yeah. you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, really kind of leads the thing. Um, it, talk a little bit about, you know, working with him and how you two got uh, connected on this. Yeah. So uh, we got connected through Carl. So Carl is a veteran stunt coordinator, veteran stunt performer. You probably recall him from Casino with the guy with his head in the vice. Okay, um, nice. Yeah. So that's Carl. And so Carl mentioned, yeah, we, we were casting for the role. I was pretty close to who I wanted for the role. And Carl was like, hey, check out Anthony, if you will. And I checked him out. I was like, hey, this guy's amazing. Like, if you look at his credits, it's like 100 some odd credits. He's like worked with Eastwood and he was on Jack Reacher with Tom Cruise. He worked with David O. Russell in The Fighter. He was Mark mm -hmm. Wahlberg's last match on The Fighter. And, and just the list goes on and on and on who he's worked with. And I had I had my choices. They were all stunt guys. No matter what, I wanted a stunt guy to play that role. Because when you're dealing with a very low budget film, your punches and hits and falls, because you don't have that budget, your flaws can show very quickly. And I mm. didn't want that to happen. I wanted it all to feel very real. So everyone that I was having audition for the lead role was a stunt guy. And what put me over the top was was Anthony was a type of person actor that I want to work with in my career coupled with, he was just the most, most well-rounded um, vulnerable actor I could find that, that fit the role. So I had both those things working for me and, and yeah, we, we met and I told them my vision for the film. I was like, Hey, it's all gorilla. You're not going to get a makeup person. You're not going to get a hair person. There's no mm -hmm. wardrobe. We're running from one location to the next. Uh, I want to put a train scene in there. Never made the final film, nor did we shoot it. But you're going to go running through the train station and we're going to have a little <laughs> camera. And, and that's how the film is going to be shot. And he was like, OK, uh, I'm aboard. And 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 yeah, and that's how how that started. And, and we've become good friends since. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, to to that whole guerrilla filmmaking style, I noticed the first IMDb trivia piece is uh, to achieve some of the hard to get locations. <laughs> the film was shot without permits. Um, w w maybe talk a little about some of the uh, challenges of like this particular level of movie making. Yeah. So I've been making movies since 2010 um, and a mix of permitted films and non-permitted films and um, one f feature in shorts, like uh, a few shorts and then a lot of uh, smaller things and stuff like like that. So I'm used to shooting gorilla, and that was a big thing that I leaned in on. I was like, I understand how to do this and and when the cops come, what to do and all that stuff. So I was like, hey, let's lean into that and shoot wherever I want because <laughs> because mm -hmm. I have a low budget film and I don't want it to look shitty. So it's yeah. like, I was like, I just don't want to shoot in one room or something like that. Let's shoot everywhere. And the only way I could do that was to shoot without permits, you know, to shoot yeah. on the L LA River. Spoiler alert in that one scene where you have that graphic 
killing on the river, there's no way I could shoot there. That's closed off. They're not going to allow sure. me to shoot there. I'm not going to be allowed to put my camera on top of cars and drive around Los Angeles <laughs> through tunnels and have a camera on the side of a van. So like the van is taking up this much room and then you have a camera on this side. Oh, um, sure. I can't do that. They're, not, they're never going to allow me. So it was a very conscious choice early on uh, to shoot with no permits. And also, like, I just don't have the time to take out the permits. Like, um, um, I had a bunch of producers who were amazing on the project, but I couldn't I couldn't bring in more producers to take out all the permits and 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 line that all up, especially when you have 60 locations. It's, it's yeah. way too much work. Don't have the budget. So it was like expletive it like effort um we'll just shoot no permits and yeah. and we'll spend no more than three hours in each location and jump around and do company moves so mm. that's the way i knew it from the beginning and leaned into it and everyone that came aboard the movie knew that um and they all loved it i think it was like this this dangerous thing that everyone was just excited about it was me that was the most nervous because i was mm. like i don't want yeah. anyone to get um, not her. No one was ever in that place, but to feel scared or uncomfortable, and sure, um, sure, and everyone just loved it. Like the the river day, I almost did it a different part, and I told all the actors like, "Hey, if you're okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna be here," and they're all like, "Effort, let's do it." I was like, "Okay," and um, <laughs> and everyone knew the rules before we shot each day. I had a little speech. I was like, "Hey, if the police come." please don't talk to them. Just point to me and have them go towards me. And the police did come. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, it was, I was just so blessed with the cast and crew that they were just so like respectful and so dedicated and, and leaned into the idea. And, and when the police did come, they could tell it was very like organized set and, and they let us go. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> so I, I have this, uh, this question, and this might be a little bit of a reach, okay? But I did want to ask you this, um, yeah. because after I was watching this film, I, I was thinking about it in parallel to like the fundamental changing of everything going on with the film industry. And going from movie making as, you know, this big business, it's like you know, kind of do whatever to now it's kind of like all kind of scaling down to streaming and whatnot and all that kind of stuff. Um, and almost in a way mirroring what's happening with, uh, with, you know, the change from legal weed to, you know, now it's, everybody's got a piece of it and there's less opportunity. There's more opportunity in some ways, but less opportunity to really break out. Um, just what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I can definitely soapbox in this all, all day, but, um, <laughs> you know, to, to your point, you can start off with like, we definitely have seen the polarizing effect of wages across the country. Like the mm -hmm. rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer, and there's yeah. no more middle ground. And in some way, the film industry has turned into that as well, where you're dealing with the bulk of these $50 million plus movies. Occasionally, you'll, you'll see things in the 20 to 30 range, and then there's a whole slew of five and under. Um, sure. And, and... And yeah, it creates it creates an environment where it's very hard for filmmakers to make a movie and get it seen because you're no longer get gonna receive theatrical um, releases. You're gonna be part of a distributor that is gonna take your movie on and then give you a two week notice that it's coming out. 
and it's a conveyor mm-hmm. belt and they're going to just launch it on all the platforms. And I've been hoping for, and I've, my favorite decade of, of movie making has been the seventies. You know, there's yeah, no other sure. decade where you see the rise of the indies and also the rise of the blockbuster at the same time. Right. They should support each other really in a perfect world. Yeah. 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 And, and I think when looking at the seventies and you're seeing the rise of the indies and people going, coming out in droves to watch them, you know, they're going to, to the midnight movies. They're going to watch these new voices. And, and nowadays I don't, it's, it's, it's the studios are kind of like this giant wave that are, taking over the movies so much that now as the generations are, are moving on, like, I don't know how much of the indie film scene will survive because of just the formulaic approach, the filmmaking and the budgets being so high. And now you're talking about AI that's going to continue to make these formulaic type of stories because that's what works in this part of the world. And we know we'll achieve the box office here if we have this. So yeah, we're definitely seeing that and hopefully hopefully there will be a rise in indies again, but it's it's very hard to to make a movie nowadays, but there is a formula. So for someone yeah. like me and um the director of the kill room, I think her name was Nicole, right? Yes, Nicole Pan. Yeah. Yeah. And for someone like that, that you know, I I'm pretty sure the kill room was made for five or under, or maybe ten sure. or under, somewhere along those lines. There is a formula there. And and she touched that formula by having those names in there. So, you know, if if you go about the film industry the right way and and meanwhile you do have to adhere to certain commercial trends, like putting certain actors in your movie, so this way you're guaranteed certain sales and all of that. But there is a formula that you can make your indie for two point five or less or five or less. Um, yeah, I can go further, but I, I'll stop it there for for now. <laughs> <laughs> all good, all good. Yeah. Very, very uh, eye opening for sure. Um, you mentioned the killing of a Chinese bookie, but you got any uh, like hard on your sleeve influences that you uh, had in mind while making this? Yeah, definitely. You probably noticed a heavy Michael Mann type of of sure. um, influence. So yeah, um, no, no me, no time when I'm making the film and I'm trying to be Michael Mann. It's just, or channeling that type of filmmaking. It was more of like, I really enjoyed the synth wave neon scene. And I was, I was out yeah. there definitely with the mind frame of I'm making my neon neo-noir. Um, sure. And, and man does that a lot. And, um, and if you look at the eighties and nineties with the films that came out around that time period with the heavy synth wave soundtracks and a lot of neon and, and your main character on a bridge, smoking a yeah. cigarette, dreading sure. his life. Meanwhile, the 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 keyboard is playing. You know that that was the the film that I had in mind. Without it getting cheesy or anything like that, making it very current, and and that was um, what I was trying to do there. So so yeah, so that was the the basic influence for for the film was was to have something very new. But for me, I could definitely um, attach on to the 80s, 90s filmmaking with the 70s um, anti-hero. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a composer myself, and I really like the score uh, in oh, your great. film. Uh, yeah, definitely fit that vibe for sure. So uh, good stuff there. Thank you. Um, what are you working on now? We got to ask you that. Yeah, so... Um, 
it, it's funny, like when when I made my my first movie was a comedy, and then mm-hmm. after that, I you know you're you're kind of going through your your filmmaking journey, and I, I I was exploring that and being very artsy and um, so to speak, because you you're making shorts and and uh, mm-hmm. that's what my dad all along the entire way kept telling me. He's like Jonathan, make a horror make an action. <laughs> and so, and that's what yeah. I grew up watching was just action and horror films, especially more action, like a lot of Stallone and Schwarzenegger and all that stuff. Sure. And then, yeah, that was when in 2019, my checklist, I knew I wanted to make an action film. And, and I sort of forgot how much I love the action genre. And so, yeah, so the next film is an action film. That's kind of a long way to get there, but, but yeah, so I have an action film. It's called Kill 49. It's about an assassin that comes back for a job and then discovers um, who he thinks is the person that killed his family and then sets off for revenge against that person. And the script is done. I started now that the strike is over. I started handing it out, um, working on on the next draft of it right now. And I'm looking forward to getting that out there and um, getting feedback. And I literally just started sending it out this last weekend. So that's the next film, looking to make that, and I'm pretty excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah, look forward to seeing how that comes about. But uh, yeah, uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for doing the show. Where can people find you, and where can people find The Last Deal? Yeah, so The Last Deal, they can find it on Amazon. Um, That's probably the best spot. Uh, Or your favorite platform is playing in the United States. Opens in Canada next week, or this week coming up, October 5th. It's playing in Ireland, the UK, parts of uh, Northern Europe. We just sold the Middle East, so it's going to be all over the Middle East. But Amazon, your favorite platform, if you have stars, you can watch it for free on demand on stars. And then, yeah, or go to the lastdealmovie.com website. And we're very active on Instagram at the last deal movie. And that's the best way to find it and then learn more about me as well. Awesome. Well, Jonathan, again, thank you so much for being here. And maybe we can get you back again sometime for another movie. Yeah, I love it. And thank, thank you again for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm Josh Bell. And I'm Jason Harrison. We co-host a podcast called Awesome Movie Year. Each season, we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. We deep dive into these specific years and we pick out why they were such great years for films. We go over the biggest hits, the biggest flops, the best pictures, some personal picks, some cult classics. Years we've covered in past seasons include 1994, 2003, 1977, and 1984. And we've got all of film history to look forward to. So check us out at awesomemovieyear.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation about The Kill Room as well as The Last Deal. Thanks to Jonathan Salami for joining me. Make sure to go watch his movie. Go watch The Kill Room as well. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. If you're out there, uh, if you are enjoying piecing it together, it would be very helpful if you drop us a little five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods or Spotify, wherever it is you're listening. It helps make sure the show gets seen by more people and 
that's what we're here to do, to get this thing out there to a lot of people. At the time this one is going up, just yesterday we'll have done our live podcast on The Exorcist Believer. I'm recording this in advance, so hopefully it went well. I'm sure it did. Uh, But that will be up next week on the show. Uh, But also there is a lot more piecing it together on the way, so make sure you are subscribed. You could also follow us on social media at PiecingPod to find out about all the new episodes. But, you know, get those subscribers up, you know. We want to be able to uh, say that we got all these people out there that are listening, and they are. And thanks for listening and for sending in your puzzle pieces. I appreciate you guys all being out there. Uh, I told you about the Patreon at the top of the show. If you want to check it out, patreon.com slash by David Rosen. Lots of great stuff there, as well as some uh, piecing it together episodes I haven't released yet. They will be on the Patreon for a little while longer and then hitting the main feed. But I got a lot more to record as well. So let's close this out with a piece of music like I always do. I kind of wanted to go with something that uh, fits a little bit with how Jonathan was describing the score for his film, The Last Deal. Something that kind of fits in with that whole synth wave or just synth-based stuff. And so uh, I wanted to play something like that. So I'm going to play a track called Kaleidoscope, which is actually a preview of a song That's part of next year's plans, so I'll be announcing my plans for 2024 very soon and probably the next couple of weeks, Uh, but this is one of those songs, so you're getting a little preview of next year. It's probably like 95% done, I'd say. Uh, I say that about all my unfinished music. It could change a whole lot before it comes out, but it's probably pretty close to done. But anyway, this is a song called Kaleidoscope. Hope you enjoy it, and we'll be back with more Piecing It Together real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.